Our text this morning is a long one. After all, it is a sermon. So, you get two scripture readings this morning for the price of one. I think it's, it's valuable to go through this because it gives us a feel for the way, not just what Stephen says, but the way in which he says it. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's word. This is the completely inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative word of God. Acts chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for the sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, 
And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God has sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idols, the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of a house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? 
And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing upon it in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would teach us from Stephen's words. Stephen's words that you indeed, O Lord, have inspired and have caused Luke to record for us. This sermon, Lord, is not merely for the Sanhedrin. It is not merely for the church in Stephen's day. But it is for us. And we ask, O Lord, that you would use it to mold us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. You've heard of the phenomena. Perhaps you have also used it as a teaching point with your children or with others. It's the phenomenon of taking things for granted. I don't know how it occurs in your life or in your family. One of the ways in which it occurs in my family throughout the years is over the all-critical subject of dessert. You see, when a meal is done, there must be dessert, right? Why? Well, because we always have dessert. Because we like dessert. Because it's, it's a part of the meal. It's, what we, it's a right we have. It's, I think, the 11th Amendment in the Bill of Rights, that thou shalt have dessert after a meal, especially if thou hast finished the meal properly. But there's a a codicil that says even if you haven't, you can still maybe get part dessert. Now, that's a humorous way to look at it, but we see this in other areas, don't we? Isn't one of the great challenges of our day right now the fact that we have a generation that grew up through high school, college, and working expecting, taking for granted that they would always have not only a job, but a high-paying job that would allow them to buy whatever they wanted to buy. As we went through boom times in the 80s and in the 90s, and we just expect that that's the way the economy should always be. We take it for granted. And we're shocked when it's different. Even more serious, I think, in spiritual things is the way that the Christian church takes things for granted. We take for granted that we should always be able to speak our minds. We take for granted that the government should support us in our evangelism and in our ability to minister to others. We can't imagine that the world would be otherwise. And yet we open a newspaper and we see Christians arrested for distributing literature on a public street outside a Muslim festival. And then we turn the page and see how New York City is bending over backwards to construct the largest mosque in New York City right on ground zero. And we wonder, where did our country go? We take things for granted. That was true also, especially, of the Jews in the days of Acts. It was one of the main reasons that they refused to listen to the Lord Jesus Christ as he ministered to them because they took for granted the most important thing of all. 
their relationship with the living God. They took for granted that God owed them a relationship, that they were worthy of God's love, and that he should believe himself blessed to be called their father. Stephen corrects that in a long, historical, but at the end very pointed sermon, speech. We're going to look at that this morning here. And what I would like us to see is that we are not so different, I think, from the Sanhedrin. We may not have all of the errors that they have fully formed, but we need to be aware of the tendency of our hearts to take God for granted. And so what I would like us to see this morning are three things. First, I would like us to look at the reason for the sermon. Why is Stephen speaking this now today? And then second, we will see the story of the sermon. Like any good preacher, Stephen knows how to lay out the narrative so that he can apply points from it. So we'll see the reason for the sermon and the story of the sermon. And then finally, we will see quite pointedly the application of the sermon. It's so pointed an application that we will see next week it brings about his death. Well, let's look then first at the reason for the sermon. Why is Stephen speaking these words to the Sanhedrin? You may recall when we looked two weeks ago at Acts chapter 6, we saw that Stephen was being accused of grave error. He was being accused of blasphemy. They had brought up false witnesses to say that Stephen was blaspheming God and blaspheming Moses and blaspheming the temple. They basically said, everything that we hold dear, Stephen hates and makes fun of. He isn't a real Jew. He's someone who seeks to undermine God's worship, undermine God's people, undermine the very notion of God. These are very serious accusations, very serious charges. The most important thing in all of Judaism at this time was the temple. And the second most important thing was the law that was in the temple. But you see, Stephen is being accused of holding all of those things in contempt. And so what Stephen begins to do here is to defend himself against this charge. But the main purpose of his speech, his sermon, is not to defend himself. Because as you look, he doesn't exactly do a great defense attorney job. If you've ever watched legal shows or plays or movies, you know that the defense attorney's job is to try and get sympathy or empathy with the jury or with the judge, get them to identify. You don't look at the jury and yell at them and accuse them of being murderers and hypocrites and persecutors. So while Stephen is defending himself, that's not his main purpose. It's not like when Peter was defending himself, he was answering the charges, charge for charge, from the scriptures. No, Stephen is giving us, in one sense, a very real lesson in biblical theology. He's teaching us how to use the Bible to prove the main point of the scriptures. That Jesus is the Messiah, and that he is the Savior of sinners. He is not afraid to own up to being Jewish. 
He is not afraid to defend himself and to identify with the God of Israel. If you glance with your eye, you will see that nine times throughout this speech, he uses the phrase, our fathers. In verse 2, in verse 11, in verse 12, 15, 19, 38, 39, 44, and 45. Over and over again, he says to these men who are accusing him of blasphemy, our fathers did this. I identify with you. Paul will pick up many of these same topics later in Acts, we will see. He will make many of the same comments. But Stephen comes in his defense (coughs) as a kind of a go-between between Peter and Paul. He is the announcement that in Acts we are about to go from primarily a ministry to the Jews to a ministry to the Gentiles. (coughs) Stephen is defending himself, but not primarily. He's also coming to God's defense. Now you may say, well, wait a minute here. God is the last being on in the universe that needs defense. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. Why does God need a simple man like Stephen to defend him? Well, you see, what Stephen is doing here is not defending God because he needs it. He's defending God's name, defending God's purposes, especially defending God's purposes in moving toward the Gentiles. (coughs) Excuse me. And so what he is doing here is telling the Jews... God's purpose throughout history. And he has a marvelous way of doing this. He is trying to hold fast to the interest of all of his accusers. Now, how do you do that? Well, he begins speaking on the favorite topic of the Sanhedrin. Themselves. And their history. And their fathers. And their temple. And so he has their attention in a very firm and rapt way. He goes throughout all of Jewish history, hitting all of the highlights, as we'll see in a minute. He hits Abraham and Moses and Joseph and David and Solomon. And you can imagine, as they're sitting there listening, saying to themselves, oh, yes, our father Abraham. Mm -hmm. Oh, father Moses. Yes, we are his children. Father Joseph. Oh, yes, I know where his bones are buried. Oh, David. King after God's own heart. Yes, he's my king. (coughs) Solomon, oh, all of his wisdom. I've earned a place in history from that. (coughs) Well, after he goes through all of this history, Stephen then brings himself at the end to a turning point. It's Really, in a sense, the drama of preaching. Small aside here, I wonder why anyone needs to have drama in in replacement of preaching when preaching is so dramatic. You see, Stephen has led these Israelites, he's led the Sanhedrin up to the summit of a point, and then he says here in verse 51, completely out of the blue to them, you stiff-necked people, you persecuted all the prophets, you killed them. And they go from, wait a minute. He he was just telling us how great we were. Wait a minute. What? Was he saying something else in the middle of that sermon? 
wait a minute. You see, there's a dramatic historical effect in what Stephen is doing. And he's doing it to lay out God's purpose in history. He's not doing it unlike Nathan the prophet. When he tells that story to David and draws David in and David knows exactly what's going on and then he turns to him and he says, you are the man. You can imagine how the Sanhedrin would feel. But he defends God right from the very beginning. Look with me at verse 2. He says, brothers and fathers. What a respectful tone. Reminds us of Peter, doesn't it? Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Not just a God. Not just the God, but the God of glory. So Stephen is affirming that he believes in God but that he also believes in the highest expression of God. That God is glorious, that God is all-powerful. And I think there's also something else going on here, tying together the defense of God and the defense of Stephen. Do you remember what Stephen looked like as he spoke? Take your thumb and put it over the big seven that divides chapter 6 from chapter 7. And look at verse 15 of chapter 6. Part of the same story. They were gazing at him and his face was like the face of an angel. He had the glory of God on his face. And so he's telling them about the God of glory. And at the same time he's saying, not only do I believe in this God of glory, the God of glory believes in me and what I'm telling you. Look at my face. He ties this together. This is not unintentional. Well, this is the reason why he gives the sermon, but what is he then going to do? He's not just going to lecture the Sanhedrin. He's going to tell them a story. And he begins first, the only place that any Jew would begin, which is Abraham. You might think that they might want to begin with Adam. No. Perhaps Noah. No. Why Abraham? Because you see, Abraham points out the difference between the Jews and all the other scumbags of the earth. And that's the way they viewed it. You see, Noah would point to a commonality, a universality of God. That God owns the universe. That God is the God of all believers. Adam would point back to the commonality of the entire human race. And so they always begin with Abraham. Stephen plays their game for them. He begins right with Abraham, but he does it in a way that harkens back to an earlier time. He says, hear me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. You know, the land of the pagans, the land of idolatry, the land of the Babylonians, the land of the Persians, the land of all of the people that you denigrate. That's where God revealed himself to Abraham. God is not too proud to be found among the Gentiles. God is not too proud to be found where people do not know him. God is the seeker. He goes after people like Abraham. And Mesopotamia was a place that would be linked with idolatry, even in the family of Abraham. In Joshua 24, we read that Abraham's father worshipped the moon and the stars. Mesopotamia would also be linked to Israel's enemies. Do you remember what the place was called where Abraham was called from? 
was Ur of the Chaldeans. Do you remember who the Chaldeans are? Well, we read, read of them in the book of Habakkuk. We read how horrible they are, how they're a monstrous war machine, and how they persecute and kill and rob and maim. Do you know what another name for a Chaldean is? It's a Babylonian. Now, think how they would take this. Stephen says, yes, God, the God of glory, appeared to Abraham when he was in the land of Babylon. Oh, I thought the only relationship God had to Babylon was to smite it, to destroy it, to hate it. We're God's chosen people. Why would God like anyone who's Babylonian? But you see, Stephen wants them to see that God is in control of Israel's destiny. God is in control of his people, not them. And then Abraham comes from Ur to Haran, and then he goes into the promised land. And the promised land was something that Israel just loved. Not only because they had a land, but because it was a sign of God's blessing. Much in the same way that in America today, the American church views its bank accounts as God's blessing. Its cathedrals as God's blessing. Its ability to be on television shows and to speak to politicians as God's blessing. And it may be. But those things come because of the blessing of God. They are not infallibly the blessing of God. You see, what happened is Abraham came to the promised land and Stephen makes the point very pointedly. He did not get anything. Not even one footstep. There was only one place in all of the promised land that Abraham could call his own. And it was a burial plot. And he bought it with his own money. Abraham wandered as a pilgrim throughout the promised land. You see, what Stephen is doing is reminding the Jews, he's reminding the leaders that it is not about the land, it's about God. This Abraham that you look up to wasn't concerned about the land. He wasn't concerned about the building. He was concerned about the relationship he had with God. And then he goes on. He says, well, let's take another famous patriarch. Joseph. And he does this again in a way in which takes the rug out from under them. He says, so in verse 8, Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of the twelve patriarchs. And we can almost imagine the Sanhedrin sitting there adjusting their ties, saying, yes, I'm of the tribe of Naphtali. Oh, well, I'm of the tribe of Judah. Well, I'm of the tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. Isn't it great to be a descendant of the patriarchs? Weren't the patriarchs the best? Didn't they know everything? Didn't they have a great relationship with God? And even as they are thinking these things, verse 9 comes. Yeah, these patriarchs, because they were jealous of Joseph, they sold him into Egypt. Ooh, we forgot about that. We forgot that they didn't always follow God, didn't trust God didn't trust his servant, didn't trust his prophet who came to them with a dream. But you see, Joseph found God. God was with him. Where was God with him? Of all places in the world, Egypt. Now think about that. 
Stephen has just said that God has reached out and made a relationship with his people in the two places most hated by the Jews. Babylon and Egypt. They're scratching their heads at these points. Why is God in Egypt? Isn't Egypt a land of of night and of idolatry and of barbarity? No, says Stephen. Joseph actually rose up to rule Egypt. God blessed him and he blessed Egypt and he blessed them for his people's sake because Jacob and his family came down and were preserved in Egypt. They left the promised land. Now there's something interesting that then goes on. God takes Jacob and his family into the prom- out of the promised land and into Egypt. And you would think that as soon as they had gotten their fill of food, and as soon as the famine was over, these Jews who loved the promised land, who were children of Abraham and told everyone that they were, would immediately, as quick as possible, go back to the promised land. But you'd be wrong. They hung around Egypt. They liked Egypt. They liked what Egypt had to offer. They forgot about the promised land. They forgot about God. And God takes them back to the promised land. No, we might better say God drove them back into the promised land. Just as he drove Abraham out of Ur. You see, the people of God here once again move away, turn away from God. They reject God and his prophets. For God sends them Moses. Now you can imagine at this point in the sermon, they are just full of themselves. Let's, let us hear all about Moses. Tell us, tell us how he did the plagues. Tell us how he parted the Red Sea. Tell us how the sea collapsed and killed all those Egyptians. Tell us how they, they smote the Amorites. Tell us how they did all of these things. Stephen says, let me tell you a little bit about Moses. Moses went to try and be the redeemer and saver of Israel. And you know what they did? They rejected him. Not once, but twice. They rejected him and had to wait 40 years for the promised land. And then, as they are wandering in the wilderness, they reject him again. They reject the law that he brings. They would rather worship a golden cow than listen to Moses. And so they wait another 40 years to get into the promised land. You see, Stephen is giving them the true story of Israel. They have polished it up. They have done some editing. And in their version of Israel's history, they are the heroes of the world. But in reality, they're people who reject God, who lack faith, whom God needs to keep pursuing, whom God needs to keep showing grace to. This is a bit like the church. The church goes through periods of times in which it is full of itself. It thinks its influence is great. It thinks that it is in charge of the state. It thinks that it is owed something from the world and from God. But you see, the church also can fall short. We can lack faith. We can seek the things that God has given to us more than God. And when that happens, don't be surprised if God takes the things away. Not as a punishment but to remind us what we should truly be seeking. The Lord and a relationship with Him. The last 
part of this story is the story of David and Solomon. And it links together not only the history of Israel, but this temple that they knew and loved. And they begin to speak about the temple. But he begins in verse 44 with the tabernacle. He says, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. They had that tent, and they still didn't listen to Moses. And Joshua then brought it in, and it was there until David said, How come I live in a palace and God dwells in a tent? But Stephen reminds them that the temple wasn't important to God in and of itself. God said, I don't even need a temple. I don't need something built with hands. God actually goes so far as to use this as an opportunity to show grace to David. He says, you think you can build me a house. Let me tell you what. I will build you a house. Speaking of his dynasty. Speaking of the culmination in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Stephen says the temple is significant, but it is a part of God's plan and history. It's not the sum of it. He tells them this story. He hits every highlight that they would want to hear. He's got their perfect attention. And then he begins to apply the sermon. This is the place where people get uncomfortable. Ooh, you mean I actually have to do something based on what I believe? Ooh, you mean that's me in that Bible text? And Stephen does this directly and forcefully, beginning at verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. He begins by applying the sermon. He begins by speaking of God's sovereignty and that God was completely in control. This has gone on from the beginning and now he makes it clear. Look back with me at verse 3. God is in complete control of Abraham. He tells Abraham to go out. And then in verse 4, he removes Abraham from Haran. The word there is the same word that's used for exile. He forcefully takes Abraham from one place to another. And then God is in charge. He gives the inheritance at his timing. We see in verse 5. God is in control of the patriarchs, you remember from this story. He is able to bring good from evil. And he is preparing a place for them. God was in control of Moses and Israel in the wilderness. And God was even in control of the temple. He was in control of David's desire and his own. God is in complete control. And the Israelites have missed it. But then he begins to apply something a bit closer to the bone than just sovereignty. We can think about God being sovereign, God being in control. But then he begins to think about God's judgment. You see, the Jews' best argument that Jesus was not the Messiah was, there's no way we would have missed the Messiah. We're reading our Bibles every day. We've studied Isaiah. We've memorized Jeremiah. We know all these Bible texts. And let me tell you, Jesus was not the Messiah. I would have known it if he was. That's their culminating argument. They're still waiting for the Messiah today. But you see, Stephen says, you missed Joseph. You threw him into prison. 
You missed Moses. You rejected him twice. You missed the meaning of the temple. What makes you think you didn't miss the Messiah? You see, God is the one who judges, not you. And this same indictment can come to us in the church. You see, we can say, we know when God is in something because we would, we would know it. We've studied our Bibles. We've looked at our history. And we become the arbiters of where God is moving. This is the story of the pagan church of the 21st century. Where worship services are held, where skunks and raccoons and lions parade down at the beginning of a worship service. Where the people of God are told that sin is okay. That it's okay to kill your babies. That it's okay to form perversions. Because, of course, we live in an enlightened society. And the church itself falls down on the job. And so as the people of God, we must see God's judgment and we must hold not only the world, but the church accountable to the word of God. We must follow after what God has given to us. And you see it here in verse 51. Remember how I told you Stephen used the term over and over again, our fathers? Look at verse 51. As your fathers did. There's the switch. There's the, you are the man. Stephen has taken it and he has said, I am a believer in God. I am a believer in the temple. I am a believer in Moses. I am a believer in the law. And as we do that, we stand together. But let me tell you, when you start resisting God's judgment, you're on your own. You must know what God is doing in the world. And he begins then to indict them. To tell them that they have rejected the prophets. To tell them that they have persecuted the prophets. And that culminates in their rejection of the righteous one. You see, he has been laying out parallels between Joseph and Jesus. And Moses and Jesus. And we see that here where he says, Moses told you he was going to raise up a prophet. Why didn't you listen to Moses? And they're looking around saying, we all know who Moses is. And he says, no, you don't. You haven't listened to him. You missed God's judgment. You must repent. You must believe in the righteous one. It's not too late. He then concludes by describing for them God's provision. And he does it in an oblique way. Unlike Peter, he doesn't say that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah and is risen from the dead. What he does is, he uses what they've latched on to. The law. The temple. And he says, do you know what the purpose of the law was? The law wasn't an end in itself. The law was to get you to pay attention to God. To see your sin. To see your constant need of sacrifice. To hear from Moses that you must listen to the next prophet. The purpose of the law is to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must never forget this. Even as we seek to uphold the word of God, the word of God, the law of God is to point us to Jesus. To show us our inability. To show us that we have no hope apart from Christ. But they won't hear him. 
Stephen holds out life. And in a very literal way, they choose death. They kill him. Because they would rather have what they are comfortable with. They would rather have what they think they are in charge of than the plan of the God they claim to serve. You see, they don't understand the gospel. And that's not something new. That's Isaiah 53. That's Jeremiah 31. That's Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. That's Psalm 32. It's Psalm 51. The gospel is found throughout the Old Testament and they have rejected it. And Stephen holds them accountable for it. So the question then comes to us as the people of God who know and love His Scriptures. Do we love the gospel of God? Do we love the plan of God? Do we love the sovereignty of God and do we serve Him no matter where He will take us? Will you serve Him if in your generation Christianity goes to a trickle in America but booms in China and India? Or will you say, why aren't we getting the blessings? You see, we are the people of God serving God, not ourselves. Stephen reminds us of this. It is a powerful sermon. It is a sermon that cost him his life. Hear even the dead when they speak. Let's pray.